This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. People want to bust, break out before you get bum rushed at the Wild Wild West. When I roll into the Wild Wild West. You know, when I think of Will Smith and, you know, his rapping, I think of Michael McKee out there in the West. Actually, he is the hardest working man in Hollywood this week. Our international economics and policy correspondent joining us from the Jackson Hole Symposium in Wyoming. Mike, how's it going out there? I thought you were going to uh, say I was the international policy and rap correspondent. Um, <laughs> well, you're so many things. It's going you, well. You wear so many hats. <laughs> we, we've already had our first moose sighting, so everybody here is pretty happy. Uh, I think last year we didn't see one at all. So uh, as long as you got a moose, then the members of the Open Market Committee and uh, other academics who are attending this conference are happy. Uh, so far, so good. Uh, I was asked yesterday if the mood is a little different here this year because of the global economic situation. And I have to say, it's not really. Uh, people are generally upbeat about the U.S. economy, and uh, they're, they're not as concerned. They, they don't see, or at least they're not acting as if any kind of rate move by the Fed in September is a big deal. Now, maybe that's just posturing, but it's different from the way it was back in the uh, early 2000s when we were in the great financial crisis. Mike, you had a great interview that aired this morning with um, regional Fed President Esther George from Kansas City. What was one of your main takeaways from it? Well, I think the main takeaway has to be that she is looking at the glass half full while some members of the Fed are looking at the glass half empty. They all see the same data and some think that the economy is slowing a bit. She thinks that the economy isn't slowing. It's maintaining its momentum and that we're kind of at neutral. The Fed isn't affecting the course of the economy one way or another right now. And so we don't need to cut rates any further. She still worries about financial stability. She admits that her old fears about inflation haven't been realized. Uh, But she worries about the idea of financial bubbles forming if they continue to cut rates because the economy is still going fairly strong. Well, and let's uh, take a listen to part of that interview, because, Mike, as you said, made uh, some pretty big headlines. As I look at where the economy is, it's not yet time. I'm not ready to begin to provide more accommodation to the economy without seeing an outlook that suggests the economy is getting weaker here. Where would you put uh, the neutral rate right now relative to where you are? Are you tight? Are you loose, uh, accommodative? How, How do you see it? So I I would judge a policy to be at neutral or even accommodative with this last rate cut. If you think about where real interest rates are uh, relative to the rate of inflation and where the Fed funds rate is, we're operating close to zero with real rates. I can't believe that that is tight in any sense uh, for the economy right now. And that was, of course, uh, Fed President Esther George speaking with Michael McKee. We have Mike with us from Wyoming. So, Mike, you mentioned a moose sighting. The animals that we're even more concerned with, hawks and doves. What's the breakdown as you look ahead to tomorrow? You see what I did there? I saw what you did there. Uh, We're kind of looking to see how many uh, doves there are versus how many hawks, whether the hawks 
uh, whether there's enough of them to change the debate over whether the Fed is going to cut rates in September. Probably not at this point, although a number of them have suggested in recent weeks that they aren't overly concerned at this point. Right. And the minutes showed us that there were some uh, some people who may be persuaded uh, the other way. But the voters at this point went along with Jay Powell. Now, we'll see how much Powell emphasizes the need for rate cuts tomorrow. He's in a tricky position because he doesn't want to tell people the economy is tanking and set off some kind of panic on Wall Street. So we'll, we'll see whether he tries to rally people to his side or just uh, uses the same formulation he has in the past that the Fed will do what's necessary to keep the economy on track. Mike, can you explain to us what the Jackson Hole meeting is like? What happens tomorrow and Saturday? Well, we do get a keynote speech usually from the Federal Reserve Chair. And for most of the 45-odd years of this conference, uh, it's been bland and unremarkable. Ben Bernanke did use this occasion to pre-announce QE2 and QE3, and that has Wall Street very focused on the meeting uh, ever since. But this is really an academic conference. The Fed, uh, Kansas City Fed sets a theme, in this case challenges for monetary policy, and invites academics to write papers on theory that they can discuss and think about. It doesn't uh, result in any kind of decision-making. It doesn't result in any kind of consensus. Uh, it's just a, a regular academic conference where a paper is presented, it's discussed, and uh, questions are asked, and then they move on to the next. But it has this mystique of great interest, and it does have all the policymakers here for the news media to talk to. So that adds to uh, the mystique, and it adds to the import. And so, Mike... Is it, as I imagine, one of these situations where people, you know, talk on stage, they give their presentations, they give their interviews, they stick to their talking points, but there are cool, interesting things that happen like on hikes and over drinks and things like that? Yeah, you could call it the uh, Fed nerd version of Davos, I suppose. It's the behind the scenes. It's the off the record conversations that really matter. They do have organized hikes here. They will uh, be having them tomorrow and on Saturday. And uh, I know a lot of people uh, spend a lot of time talking to each other, Fed officials and other central bankers on those hikes. We have lunches, we have dinners and even breakfasts where uh, people get together and uh, talk about things off the record or you know other subjects than what the uh, topic here is. So I'm sure they'll There'll be a lot of networking. Right. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. Michael McKee, international economics and policy correspondent. uh, Also, you know, keeping track of moose, hawks, doves, the rest (laughs) of it. Uh, Tomorrow, he's got Bullard, Kaplan, Mester and Harker all on his dance card. He's going to be busy. We'll know we'll be catching up with him tomorrow as well. And he'll be sitting in on Chair Jay Powell's presentation as well. Mike, thank you so much. Well, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly in New York. Peggy Collins, our economics guru herself, down in Washington, D.C., keeping us honest on everything that's happening at Jackson Hole and beyond. All right, we're all dancing uh, here in the New York studio. I'm sure Peggy Collins is dancing down in Washington as well. Uh, and you know who else is dancing, I guess, are people who arrange uh, or who are interested uh, in distressed at high-yield market. It is such a great indicator of where the market's head is. Catherine Doherty is here. She covers that along with bankruptcy for Bloomberg here in New York City. She's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio Great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Some people call you Kat. If you're really cool, apparently this is the inside scoop. 
They call you Kato. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the coolest nickname (laughs) I've heard in a while. So what's going on uh, out there? This was one of the most read stories of the day. Yes. So this company, Save-A-Lot, you might have seen it, um, gone shopping there. It's a discount grocer. uh, And they've experienced a lot of the problems that other retailers, not just grocers, um, have been seen, such as declining foot traffic, um, problems with uh, pricing. Uh, but their problems are also unique uh, because in the discount space, basically all the competitors are all trying to outdo each other mm. by lowering prices. And when that happens, uh, you have to monitor not only how, how you're performing, but how your peers are performing. Um, so the, this company, um, that they're based out of suburban St. Louis, some of their biggest competitors are big German discount uh, grocers um, that have encroached in their space. But then you also have the likes of Walmart and, of course, Amazon. With Amazon Prime delivering, um, people are changing their shopping habits. But we're also talking about uh, shoppers here in this situation that are looking for the, the perfect price match. So they are looking for a bargain. Mm. Kat, you write in the story a little bit about, too, its parent company, I think, Onyx, which bought Save-A-Lot in the last few years. How is that playing into the situation they're in right now? Yeah, so Onyx is their owner, um, and they are very supportive of the company. Um, they held a conference call this month talking about um, their vision for this this retailer moving forward, um, but also acknowledging that the turnaround that they expected to happen is somewhat delayed. Um, the, I think that there was a, a quote of one of the Onyx uh, managing directors calling it, uh, the goalposts have been moved or right. some sort. Um, so basically they were expecting things to turn around, uh, expecting these problems to be fixed faster, quicker. Um, and it's been... A tougher road right. for them. And one of the reasons we're so interested in this, I think, Kat, and, and again, keep us honest here, is that got high leverage. You know, Onyx, this was a leverage buyout. And so they put a lot of debt on this company. And we get a window into this market and into this company in part based on the appetite for that debt. It's risky debt. Yeah, uh, this is definitely... So this is a, uh, a loan uh, that is trading in the 40s, 50s. So steep discount. So 40 uh, to 50 cents on the dollar. Cents on the dollar, yep. Um, and, it, and it dropped there around the time that the company reported earnings this month. Um, so you can get in for... <laughs> A bargain, um, no pun intended with yeah. this. With save a lot. Oh, I think the puns are all intended <laughs> on this. But go on. Very well done. Exactly. Um, but th- this loan also has no covenants. So uh, with their earnings that they recently reported, their leverage has swelled. But lenders can't really do anything about it right. because they're not breaching any covenants because there are no covenants. So that's where the company can just continue on and and try to. Uh, do what they've been doing with executing their turnaround Um, and lenders are sitting on the sidelines and waiting to see if it happens. Kat, as Jason said, this leveraged loan market and whether or not more companies may default if we if the economy struggles more is a is a big theme for your team and your beat. What are you seeing if you zoom back out? Well, for me specifically, um, I cover these companies that uh, you 
have these big capital structures. The loans are trading close to par. They're owned by mutual funds, CLO, um, CLO holders. And overnight, because of some sort of announcement, whether it's earnings or a lost customer contract, these are very credit-specific, meaning it's, it's specific to the company itself. Um, but we've seen not just one, not just two, but a handful of these right. companies pop up overnight. Um, so I've been focusing on these individual credits when they come up. But when you take a step back, uh, we are seeing that there's just more volatility. There's um, And I, I talk to a lot of folks on the buy side and sell side. And what you're also seeing is people are trying to sell these loans and the price of which they can sell, or, or I guess the, the price where people are willing to come in and buy it, right. is dropping lower yeah. because they see the risk. They don't want to jump in just yet. Um, and w- when they do dr- jump in, um, usually it's like a distressed hedge fund or a distressed investor that sees some sort of discount or opportunity. Yeah. It's really interesting. A canary in the coal mine to some extent. Really nice story. Uh, Onyx save a lot debt goes for half off as rivals start to squeeze sales. Catherine Doherty here with us in New York. Tiny bubbles. So many tiny bubbles, many, many, many more bubbles maybe than there were just a few years ago. LaCroix, they've been at the center of this trend, but it's getting crowded. It's the cover story here in the U.S. in Bloomberg Business Week this week. Lauren Etter wrote it. She joins us on, she joins us, I'm sorry, from our Los Angeles Bureau, our fancy uh, little studio there. And Joel Weber, he's the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He's here with me in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And of course, Peggy Collins still with me. She's down in D.C., the magic of radio. So Lauren, uh, Tell us about LaCroix because it's a well-known brand, but really mostly over the past few years. Yeah, that's right. So this is a brand that has really made its way into the uh, minds of pop culture. It's super mainstream, but it wasn't always that way. It's actually a brand owned by a company called National Beverage Corp. And they've been sitting on this for about 20 years. And it wasn't until around 2010, 2012, when they started utilizing social media and realizing that they could tap into the the decline in soda consumption and people looking for healthier options, that they really started to pop. So um, over the past few years, they really owned the market. It was LaCroix on social media, on Instagram, their rainbow of cans. And it was a very popular brand, and it remains so. But other companies saw that this is a booming market, and they have really given LaCroix a run for their money in the past couple of years. And, and tell us a bit more about that, Lauren. Like, what has what the competition been doing since LaCroix sort of uh, you know, reached fervor? Well, essentially, all of the big uh, beverage makers, Coke and Pepsi, have been rolling out their own competing brands. And those are things like Bubbly, right? Yep, Bubbly. Pepsi rolled out Bubbly, which is a very popular brand, and they're spending like crazy on social media and advertising. And then Coke has a sort of a niche brand called Topo Chico, which has its own uh, cult following. And then, in addition to these large beverage companies that are just saturating the market and plowing tons of money into advertising for their new brands, you also have 
tons of smaller startup companies backed by private equity money that are also launching their own brands. So there's a brand called Waterloo that's based out of Texas, and they claim that they're going to have a bigger, brighter bubble in their sparkling water. And then there are companies like Spindrift that are basically putting fruit juice into the sparkling water. And even more, there are companies that are putting uh, uh, cannabis, essentially uh, CBD oil, antioxidants. So it's just a very popular uh, booming market right now and lots of competition for LaCroix. And Lauren, you do a great job in this piece of talking about the founder of it, Nick Caparella. He's a towering figure, it sounds like, in the company who's built it up over the last 35 years. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found out about him and how he's leading this company? Yes, he's a fascinating individual, and he rarely talks to the media. He, uh, he did not talk to us for this story, but we talked to a lot of people who knew him and know him. And he essentially started this company in 1985 as a soft drink company. And he really, um, he grew it on soft drinks, on Shasta and Big Red and all of these other sort of second-rate soft drink brands that you might not have heard of, but that are popular in the Midwest and other markets. And he eventually acquired this uh, brand, LaCroix, in the 1990s, and as I mentioned earlier, kind of sat on the brand for a while because soda consumption was still booming. And in the early 2000s, as soda consumption started declining in the face of obesity and uh, concerns over type 2 diabetes, um, he, really, he really was a pioneer in terms of seeing an opening in the market. And he positioned his sparkling water brand, LaCroix, as an alternative to not only soda and the other mineral waters on the market, but also Diet Coke. So as people were turning to Diet Coke, they then realized that they could turn to LaCroix. And he really developed this brand. Um, he he is, is very fond of the brand. He calls it his baby. Uh, he's very possessive over the brand and very careful about what's happening with the brand. And to the point where that's caused a lot of internal internal issues with uh, corporate culture. He's a very um, he's a very dominating pre- he's a very dominating presence. And that's caused some internal rifts uh, with among some of the other executives that have um, helped build the brand. And, um, and to be clear here, Lauren, I'm, I'm looking at uh, you know how this company, National Beverage, has performed over say the last five years, and they, you know, the stock was trading north of 120, and it's basically sort of been in a downward trend since 20, middle of 2018. So over the past year, as competitors have hit the shelves alongside Lacroix to the point that now it's down just over 40, which was kind of where it started, uh, you know. A number of years ago, right? Exactly. So, and as all of this has happened, Nick Caparello, it, it's sort of like he's tightened his his reins, right? And, yeah. But to that end, you know, he he also has been the one that sort of like built the cult following, right? So, how does how do those things play out? Well, I think that internally, before LaCroix really was big, there was a, there were a few people inside the company that were really shepherding the brand. And as it started to grow in popularity and as it started to gain traction on social media, Nick Caparella kind of came back. And he had, he had kind of stepped back from his duties, but he came back and it became very, very uh, dominating over the brand and uh, led to lots of disagreements. And part of, the, part of the problem was that a lot of the people felt like he wasn't really, he, he had sort of 
tunnel vision with the brand because it had become so popular. He called it his, he called it the Tiffany, the Tiffany of sparkling water. And he felt like even as the competition was coming in that nobody, nobody could top LaCroix and his brand, uh, his brand was so strong and the brand presence was so powerful that he didn't really need to stoop to the level of dropping the price or spending a lot on advertising. And I think that that a lot of people that I talked to attributed that to sort of hubris. It's almost like a classic case of hubris in a business story. Right. Um, just kind of, you know, he, he ignored some of the competition and uh, they're trying to regain their position now, but they're really on the defense. And instead of being on the offense and being at the top of the brand, they're really fighting to maintain their presence on store shelves. All right, Lauren, uh, 30 seconds left, but what do they need to do now? I mean, what's the, what's the big idea? What could be the big idea to at least sort of arrest the, uh, the market share losses? Well, they definitely need to think outside the box. They need to, um, analysts we spoke to said they need to really start focusing on something other than flavors. They have more than, they have about 25 flavors, and that's kind of their big moment. Every time they roll out a new flavor, that's like the big thing for them. But the analysts say they need to think beyond just introducing new flavors or introducing a new can and doing something that's different, like, I don't know, something like their competitors are using uh, uh, fruit juice, real fruit juice, or adding caffeine to the drink, or adding some, uh, something that's different or new or that's uh, just out of the, the traditional mold. So I think that's going to be their big challenge right now is thinking outside of the box, really innovating, and coming up with a new product that can capture the attention of these very, in, in a very saturated market. I think the other challenge is going to be this distribution one, yeah. right? You're, you're going head-to-head with like Pepsis and, and Coca-Cola, and they're the ones who have really dominated the yeah. beverage aisle. So you're, you're, from, you're playing from a, not, not a position of strength necessarily. Well, I have to say I was walking up to work this morning I pass a Pepsi distribution truck stacks stacks and stacks of bubbly uh, coming out of that truck they've got a distinct advantage you're exactly right Joel Weber editor of Bloomberg Business Week Lauren Etter projects and investigations reporter for Bloomberg she's got the cover this week it's all about LaCroix you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week alright this is a complicated company and apparently a complicated guy running it. We're talking about Palantir CEO Alex Karp. Our own Max Chafkin features editor so much more at Bloomberg Business Week. He's in our 99.1 studio because he caught up uh, with Alex Karp for a really interesting profile and conversation. Let's listen to a bit of that at the top. We at Palantir have a, a, a view, which is that in societies where there is a functioning democracy, meaning that there are checks and balances enforced by a functioning judiciary, we have supplied the software and we will continue to supply the software. That, that's, by the way, a radical position in Silicon Valley and one that has made us unpopular from the beginning. Wow. Those are some big sweeping thoughts, literally going to the very core of our democracy. Uh, Max Chafkin, great to have you with Peggy and myself. You're right alongside Peggy there in our 99.1 studio. But let me ask you, who is this guy? I mean, he's not that well-known, and yet Palantir, it's got a bit of a reputation. Yeah, so so Alex Karp, uh, CEO, co-founder of Palantir, uh, good friend and, and obviously business partner of Peter Thiel, who's the, uh, the chairman and another founder of the company. Um, Palantir is kind of interesting. It's, we often append the word secret when we talk about it. Uh, they, the, the, their claim to fame uh, until relatively recently was that the software that they make, which is kind of a, a data mining, data visualization platform, uh, 
it was used, uh, rumor has it, never confirmed or denied, um, by the CIA in the hunt for uh, Osama bin Laden. And um, and on the, on the sort of uh, strength of that, Palantir was able to get, you know, a bunch of um, – you know, corporate contracts, uh, uh, particularly in Europe, and Palantir, uh, uh, especially over the last few years, has won lots and lots of business in the United States, um, most controversially, uh, especially since uh, uh, the election of President Trump, uh, a contract with, uh, with ICE, the U.S., uh, basically the U.S. Border Police. So, Max, tell us what Palantir's stance has been on this contract with ICE. Well, it's been a little hard to parse, and and that's partly because you know they're doing a delicate dance. Like every CEO, every you know, we, we see CEOs kind of you know falling over themselves to some extent to both distance themselves uh, with the Trump administration, maybe, and, and at times you know not um, get them to, not get uh, the White House too angry. Um, Palantir has been a little bit firmer, and 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 in this interview, you know, he is Alex Carp donated money to Hillary Clinton. He's said, you know, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm basically, I'm sympathetic to the Trump administration on immigration policy. So, so unlike many of these other Silicon Valley companies, um, he's a bit hawkish on on immigration. We saw uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Trump election, uh, many, many Silicon Valley CEOs coming out, including, you know, some, some very senior executives actually protesting um, uh, against the, uh, you know, against U.S. immigration policy. And what, what he is trying to say is basically, you know, it's not our place to, you know, dictate U.S. policy. And and this is a, a criticism, and you heard it in the clip, of, frankly, Google mainly, right. uh, which which pulled out of the bidding for, for this $10 billion cloud computing contract um, because its employees were protesting. Well, and Max, I'm so glad you brought that up because this interview and these comments and and a lot of what you were reporting comes at a time when, as you know as well as anyone, we've got big existential questions about big tech. Where does Palantir sort of fit into all that? Because it's not easy. It's essentially impossible to sort of lump them in with, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of the fang stocks that, you know, we talk about and sort of their role as it relates to social media. They're involved in in things that are, are candidly a lot more important to like national security. So it's it's hard to it's a little bit hard to untangle the cultural moment, which is I think that you know separate from uh, you know the, the the questions of the Trump administration uh, immigration policy or whatever. There's this general feeling in society that probably started around the 2016 election that big tech has too much power, right? And um, Alex Carp is making a version of that critique, but it's 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 quite different because he's not saying that um, big tech is, has too much power because you know Google controls the uh, search engine or, or, or something. He's sort of saying um, he, he he's sort of using that as a way to to kind of differentiate Palantir from some of these other um, Silicon Valley companies, which are you know in the long run probably competitors to Palantir. Yeah. I mean, the thing that's so that's really interesting about this moment and these protests. Is you had these companies, these Silicon Valley companies, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, they're all founded as consumer companies, but they're all pushing more and more into the world of defense and weapons yeah. and stuff like that. And that's where that, that puts them in conflict with a company like Palantir and for that matter with Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin and so on. Yeah, it's so interesting. 
<coughs> Excuse me, and such a, uh, a great interview. Uh, catch that. We're going to play out more of it on Bloomberg Tech later on, 5 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Television. Check it all out on Bloomberg.com, including the story by Max Palander. CEO Alex Karp outlines his complicated politics. That's a pretty good headline. Captures it uh, very well. Max joined us from our 99.1 studio in Washington, D.C. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Omar Aguilar is with us. He is Chief Investment Officer of Equities for Charles Schwab Investment Management. He joins us on the phone from San Francisco. Omar, great to have you with Peggy and myself. Uh, thank you. How's everybody? Everybody is doing great. So tell us about the markets right now, because I feel like everybody's generally feeling great, but there's still a little bit of caution in the in the backs of a lot of our minds because we see a very uh, robust and enthusiastic consumer in many ways. Good retail earnings we've seen over the past couple of days, for instance. But we also know that Closer to you than to us out at Jackson Hole, you've got a gathering of Fed folks who may be thinking about cutting rates again. So what are we to make of that? Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I think you express it very well. I think the feeling in the market uh, this week particularly is one of those like when you're driving a car and you make a turn and you realize that you're in the wrong neighborhood. Right. Like you're feeling <laughs> empowered. You're in the right. You're a car. You're protected. But somehow you feel there's risk in the horizon. You don't know why, but you just don't have that anxiety, you know, type feeling. And I think a lot of what uh, is explainable because of what you describe, all the eyes are on the central banks, um, you know, so far. Um, not just the Fed, but we have a global central bank easing program. We have uh, over 25 global central banks that have started the easing um, period. Uh, and therefore, you know, everybody's looking for what is the Fed going to do. And now the Fed is in a very different uh, situation than the rest of the central banks because our U.S. economy is very resilient and it's actually pretty solid. Unlike other parts of uh, internationally, where definitely there is concerns about you know the global slowdown and the situation economically, the U.S. GDP and the U.S. economy is actually on track to be on trend, and therefore the Fed has to evaluate you know whether or not financial stability has more merits to do another cut in September, which is pretty much priced into the market uh, for the right reasons. So, Omar, do you think stocks are overvalued at the moment, or do you think they have the potential to even go higher, even though we've seen a lot of volatility this summer? Well, that's actually a great question, because the, uh, the, the, the definition of valuation, obviously, it is in the context of where things are relative to rates, too. So as, you know, as soon as you have a different reference point of cutting rates and interest rates are lower, clearly the valuation metrics are different. So if we are in the context of assuming we have um, no more cuts in the horizon, obviously, the, uh, the, the equity market is pr- was probably getting closer to be 
above average valuation. However, with the prospect of having more easing in the horizon and lower rates, the discount rates become lower, and therefore valuation now becomes a, a different um, you know, metric. So in the context of what we may see for the, from, from rates going into the future, it actually looks like a pretty compelling case for maintaining risky assets exposure. So, Omar, talk to me about U.S.-China trade, because I feel like almost every day I get a slightly different answer from people in terms of how important this actually is. I was reading something this morning that said, you know, even if there's a dramatic reduction in imports from China, it's really not going to knock uh, a meaningful amount off of our uh, sort of economic growth, however you want to measure it here in the United States. Um, and yet it feels like it's part of the pall that's hanging over the markets, this global uncertainty, whether it's about trade or whether it's just generally about China. How do you figure that in to a cohesive investment thesis? Well, you, you, uh, I, I believe the uh, U.S. Tri- China uh, trade issue, it is definitely the game changer. It's probably the one that will um, determine the outcomes for the second part of the year. And, and, and unfortunately, as you, as you describe, it is very choppy. There is not a clear path to either you know, go into a full trade war or not. Uh, and therefore, the market is dealing with that uncertainty. And I'm going to put this into the context of what you described. So um, in in any other parts of the economic cycle, if you were in an expansion mode, and even if you were in a slowdown without the trade you know, war, you know, it will not be as high impact on the numbers. Yes, you know, the, there is a potential impact on the U.S. GDP directly from the imports. There's clearly an impact in China and their ability to continue to revive their economy. However, the biggest impact is in sentiment, uh, which is a little harder to evaluate themselves. But the sentiment that has already been you know, the, the, the created, the negative views about what it could happen has already created headwinds for all capital markets. In fact, you know, our thesis continues to be that a lot of the reasons why the global bond yields are so low is as a result of uncertainty coming from the trade war. Yes, the global slowdown is important, and yes, we have a manufacturing recession globally, but that hasn't translated into services. So the, the, market, the bond market seems to be more sensitive to what may happen with the trade war, thinking that the sentiment is going to deteriorate. On the other hand, when you look at what happens with investments into their own companies, the capital expenditures, companies in business confidence, that also has slowed down because of the trade war, because of there's no uncertain, there's no clear path of, of a resolution. So, so that in, in, in itself, it has an effect on global growth. It has an effect on sentiment. And eventually, it will have an effect on the consumer, which is what really has taken our economy to the as we are today. Well, that's a great point, Omar, in terms of we've almost got two economies going. One that's affected by the trade war directly, and that's the manufacturing side, which is seeing a slowdown, but also the services and consumer side. How strong do you think the consumer, which, as you said, is holding up the economy to a large extent right now, is? 
Well, it is pretty strong. You know, we, we just uh, continue to see data that supports the consumer spending has to slow down. I think with the labor market being as solid as we have it here in the U.S., it is clearly, uh, you know, a, a very good support for the economy. We're already seeing also be, with, between lower rates, the uh, spilled over to a positive for housing market where we're starting to see a pickup in mortgage applications. We're starting to see home builders are starting to do much better. So in, in a way, the, the services sectors and the consumers continue to be, you know, going very well, but the, the, the potential for that manufacturing recession to eventually translate into, you know, a, a problem for the consumers, it is, it is there and is not insignificant. Uh, we, before we get there, you know, we're probably going to need to see a little bit more of pickup on unemployment. We're probably going to need to see, you know, a little more softer numbers on housing, and we're probably going to see a slowdown in consumer sentiment. I think we're not there yet, but that's the potential that the trade um, disputes could actually get to. All right, we're going to leave it there. Omar Aguilar is Chief Investment Officer of Equities at Charles Schwab Investment Management. He joined us on the phone from San Francisco. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.